Welcome to the overview section of the microbacteria chapter. We're going to go over major microbial groups, view, compare, and contrast between them, the bacterial structures, stains we have to know for the exam, some mnemonics that we have to remember, as well as going over some pathogenicity, crucial for us to know for USMLE Step 1. Alright, so the basic and first thing that we need to talk about is the major microbial groups. They are divided into viruses, bacteria, fungi, and parasites, of course, and the, but the characteristics are what's important with them. Something that we have to remember about viruses is that, of course, they're very small, between 0.02 microns. They're acellular when they have no nucleus, unlike bacteria, which are con considered of prokaryotic cells. They don't have nucleoid regions and no nuclear membrane, while fungi and parasites are considered eukaryotic cells with a nucleus and a nuclear membrane. Viruses have one nucleocapsid except for insegmented or diploid viruses. In the USMLE exam regarding viruses, we have to know also the structure of the major viruses that affect us as human beings. Here is one example on USMLE step one. This question is taken from UWorld. A 14-year-old girl comes to the emergency department due to rapidly progressive exertional dyspnea and generalized weakness, preceded by mild febrile illness several days ago. This patient, 14-year-old girl, has a history of sickle cell disease and takes folic acid. Temperature is 37.2 degrees Celsius or 99.1 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure 115 over 70, pulse is 112. On examination, the patient has conjunctival pallor but no icterus. A cardiac flow murmur is present and the abdomen is non-tender with no organomegaly. Laboratory studies show a hematocrit of 16% with a reticulocyte count of 0.1%. And remember, with a reticulocyte count, our normal range is between 0.5% to 1.5%. So they should already tell us something, right? The hematocrit is very low. The reticulocyte count is in the low range. Leukocyte and platelet counts are normal. Which of the following best describes the viruses most likely responsible for the patient's current condition? Microbiology questions are two to three steps. First of all, we need to find out what this patient has. This patient developed severe anemia following a minor febrile illness, and her bone marrow is able to respond appropriately to the degree of the anemia, and if it is able to respond, what would be the reticulocyte count? Of course, the reticulocyte count would increase normally during a case of severe anemia. However, in this patient, there's an obvious sign that the reticulocyte count is below 0.5%. Instead, the patient's reticulocyte count is markedly reduced. We have to remember that what's happening with this patient is a plastic crisis, and it's common in patients with sickle cell anemia due to parvovirus B19 infection. So we already think, okay, parvovirus B19, th that's obvious because parvovirus B19 is an infection that can cause an aplastic crisis. But that's not the question. The question asks, what is the description of the virus that's infecting the patient? So the answer to the question is, it's a non-enveloped single-stranded DNA virus. That's what a pyrovirus B19 
virus is. We have to remember whether or not the virus is an enveloped virus or non-enveloped. We have to remember if it's single or double-stranded. And most importantly, we have to remember if it's a DNA or RNA virus. It's either or. Bacteria have both DNA and RNA, but they have one chromosome and no histones, while more than one chromosome is seen in fungi and parasites. Viruses replicate in host cells, right? So we also have to remember where that virus replicates. There are certain virus that we'll remember later on that replicated the nucleus or the cytosol. Bacteria will always replicate continuously, while fungi and parasites replicate in the G and S phases. Bacteria have exons but no introns, while fungi and parasites both have introns and exons. Viruses have no ribosomes, while bacteria have 70S ribosomes, which is 30S plus 50S, while fungi and parasites are 80S ribosomes, which are 40S plus 60S. In replication for viruses, they make and assemble viral components, but bacteria multiply and replicate through binary fission, while fungi and parasites, they replicate through cytokinesis with mitosis and meiosis. In regards to cellular membrane, some are enveloped, but no membrane function for viruses, but bacteria, they have membranes that have no sterols except and this is very important for the exam, except for mycoplasmas. Mycoplasmas have cholesterol in their membrane. Fungi have ergosterol, which is a major sterol. Sterols and cholesterol are also seen in parasites. Cell walls are not seen in viruses, but bacteria have peptidoglycan cell walls. Fungi have complex carbohydrate cell walls, which are chitin, glucans, or manins, while parasites have no cell wall. It's important to go over the different bacterial structure because certain appendages and structures are the ones that assist in helping us get sick. Flagellum, which is made of proteins, the function is motility. Pilus or fimbria, which unlike flagellum, which is made of proteins, pilus or pili and fimbria are made of glycoprotein. Pili and fimbria do is they mediate adherence of bacteria to cell surface, also used as sex pilus conjugation. Spores are keratin-like dipicolinic acid peptidoglycan DNA. Spores are gram-positive 100% of the time. Their survival resists dehydration, heat, and chemicals. A capsule is a discrete layer usually made of polysaccharides and rarely proteins. It protects against phagocytosis. Sometimes some bacteria have an S layer or a slime layer, which are made up of loose connected network of polysaccharides. They mediate adherence to surfaces. Slime layers are used especially for foreign surfaces such as indwelling catheters and certain bacteria are notorious for living in indwelling catheters. One important example is staph epidermidis, which is seen in catheter and prosthetic device infections causing in vivo biofilm producing bacteria. The outer membrane of a bacteria is of course very important. We have an outer leaflet which contains endotoxins, LPS, LOS, very important. LPS, lipopolysaccharide, very important in gram-negative bacteria. The outer membrane also has embedded proteins. Porins and outer membrane proteins, or OMPs, are very important in endotoxins. Lipid A, 
which induces tissue necrosis factor and interleukin-1 antigenic O polysaccharide component. And when I say lipid A, it's a component of an endotoxin that's held responsible for the toxicity of gram-negative bacteria. The inner leaflet of the cell envelope is made up of phospholipids. The periplasm is the space between the cytoplasmic membrane and the outer membrane in gram-negative bacteria. The peptidoglycan layer is in the middle when it comes to gram-negative bacteria. So it accumulates components exiting the gram-negative cells, including the hydrolytic enzymes, such as important ones like beta-lactamases. The cell wall is important because the cell wall is made up of what? It's made up of a peptidoglycan, a sugar backbone with peptide side chains cross-linked by what enzyme? It's cross-linked by transpeptidases. Netlick structure, it gives rigid support and it protects against osmotic damage. Another component of the cell envelope is the cytoplasmic membrane. It's a phospholipid bilator sac with embedded proteins, such as your penicillin-binding proteins and lipotechoic acids, which are seen in what type of bacteria? Give up. Or if you know it, it's gram-positive bacteria. Great job. Cytoplasmic membranes are site of oxidative and transport enzymes. PBPs, or otherwise known as penicillin-binding proteins, are involved in cell wall synthesis. Lipotechoic acids are the ones that induce tissue necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-1. Alright, let's go over the stains. The stains are important because we need to find out what type of bacteria it is, and the stains really help us distinguish. Starting with a very common stain, which is the gram stain. Gram stain will determine whether the bacteria is gram positive or gram negative. The gram positive bacteria have a thick peptidoglycan layer in their cell walls, and that holds the crystal violet dye. The bacteria with a thin peptidoglycan layer turn red or pink with counter stain. There are specific reasons why certain bacteria don't show up on gram stain. For example, Treponema and Leptospira are too thin to be visualized. Mycobacteria has a cell wall that has high lipid content. Glycoplasma and ureaplasma have no cell wall, and some of them are primarily intracellular. One way that I remember which organisms are primarily intracellular is bear LC, I go bear, B-A-R-E, LC, little, clam. I go bare little clam, so if the clam gets shut, it gets shut into an intracellular thing, right? So bare, B for Bartonella, A for Anaplasma, R for Rickettsia, E for Ehrlichia, L for Legionella, C for Chlamydia. Bugs that do not stain well are remembered through this mnemonic. These little microbes may unfortunately lack real color, but are everywhere. These little microbes may unfortunately lack real color, but are everywhere. These little, treponema and leptospira, too thin to be visualized. Microbes, for microbacteria, cell wall has high lipid content, may unfortunately, for mycoplasma and ureaplasma, which have no cell wall in them. Again, bare LC at the end is Bartonella anaplasma, Rickettsia, Ehrlichia, Legionella, Chlamydia, or if you go by the first aid mnemonic, lack real color but are everywhere. Lack real color but are everywhere. Legionella, Rickettsia, Chlamydia, Bartonella, Anaplasma, and Ehrlichia. The next thing we need to talk about is the GMSA stain. It's a nucleic acid stain that they use in cytogenetics, and who can you find in 
gemzestains, Rickettsia, Chlamydia, Trypanosoma, Plasmodium, Borrelia, and H. pylori. The mnemonic for that is Ricky got chlamydia as he tried to please the bored hot geisha. Once again, Ricky got chlamydia as he tried to please the bored hot geisha. Ricky for Rickettsia got chlamydia for chlamydia. <laughs> As he tried, tried for trypanosoma, please, plasmodium, B for Borrelia, H for Helicobacter pylori. And as you may already know, and if you don't, it's important to know that gemzestain is stain where you can combine it with right stain to form the right gemzestain. So we use the right gemzestain to do histopathological diagnosis of different plasmodium species of malaria and other spirochete and protozoan blood parasites. The next stain we're going to go over is the periodic acid shift stain. It's a staining method to detect polysaccharides such as glycogen and mucosa substances such as glycoproteins, glycolipids, and mucin and tissues. The important thing to remember with PAS stain is past the sugar is a mnemonic because periodic acid shift stain stains glycogen. Mucopolysaccharides is used to diagnose past the sugar to diagnose Whipple disease, Trophorima whipley. Another important stain is the Zeal-Nielsen stain, otherwise known as the carbofusion stain, that will stain acid-fast bacteria such as your microbacteria important in diagnosing TB, nocardia, as well as any mycolic acid in the cell wall. Protozoa, such as cryptosporidium oocysts, are also seen with Zeal-Nielsen stains. Besides the Zeal-Nielsen stain, otherwise known as the carbofusion stain, what other stain is there for histologic technique against acid-fast bacilli? This one is cheaper, and it's one's called oramine-rhodamine stain. And that's for screening because it's expensive and it's more sensitive. The next stain is India ink stain for Cryptococcus neoformans. It's the musicarmin that can be used to stain a thick polysaccharide capsule red. Silver stain is used by fungi for coccidoides, pneumocystis cerevici, and also used for Legionella and H. pylori. Again, silver stain used for Legionella and H. pylori as well as fungi. Fluorescent antibody stain is used to identify many bacteria, so viruses, pneumocystis cerevici, Jarjalamblia, and Cryptosporidium. We use the fluorescent antibody stain for such diseases such as cephalus, and you normally see that as FTA-ABS. Alright, so let's do a quick review on the stains. First question, what is the stain used for Rickettsia, Chlamydia, Trypanosoma, Plasmodium, Borrelia, and H. pylori? Ding. It's the Gemza stain. Remember, it's Ricky got chlamydia as he tried to please the bored hot geisha. Next question for stains, what stain is used for Legionella? Ding, ding. Silver stain. <laughs> Here is a sample question from UWorld. A 52-year-old man comes to the office with three weeks of cough, night sweats, and occasional hemoptysis. The patient has diabetes and hypertension. He immigrated from Vietnam 15 years ago to start a job as an associate professor at a university. He has a 20-year smoking history but quit five years ago. Sedum cultures on selective medium demonstrate mycobacteria that appear in parallel chains or serpentine cords under microscopy. This observed growth pattern in culture medium most likely correlates with which of the following? A. Acid fastness. B. Antibiotic resistance. C. Growth rates. D. Pigmentation. Or E. Virulence.
Let's answer the first question, what is the most likely etiologic agent? Mycobacterium tuberculosis, especially having cord factor. So, what is the cord factor most associated with? E, virulence. And we have to remember that one, it grows in the selective medium, which is for mycobacteria, that grows in parallel chains or serpentine cords. And the factor that causes that type of growth is by a certain something called cord factor. And this cord factor is composed of two mycolic acid between, and this cord factor is composed of two mycolic acids bound to the disaccharide trihalose dimycolate. So in vivo, this cord factor forms cylindrical micelles, right, that surround the organism and prevent macrophage-mediated destruction with the phagolysosome. It also forms highly toxic crystalline monolayer, which is on hydrophobic surfaces, and it helps drive cavitation and caseating granulomas that you see in micro bacterium tuberculosis. Thus, cord factor will help in the virulence. USMLE question related to this podcast topic. Bacteria isolated from a lung tissue of a 32-year-old Caucasian male failed to decolorize with hydrochloric acid and alcohol after staining carbofusion. Which of the following cell components is most likely responsible for the staining phenomenon? A and acetylmuramic acid, B, tecoic acid, C, lipopolysaccharide, D, mycolic acid, and E, ergosterol. The answer is D, mycolic acid. The procedure described is acid fast stain or carbofusion stain, which is used to detect organisms such as mycobacteria and nocardia. Although it is less sensitive than culture, the acid-fast-stained smear is used to for microscopic evaluation. So the acid-fast-stain for mycobacteria, the smear is first treated with aniline dye, otherwise known as carbofusion. The dye red color penetrates the bacterial cell wall where it binds with mycolic acids. The slide is then treated with hydrochloric acid and alcohol, and this alcohol dissolves the outer membranes of non-tuberculous bacteria, but the presence of mycolic acids prevents decolorization of mycobacteria. A counterstain is then given, otherwise known as methylene blue, is then applied and taken up by decolorized bacteria. As a result, the carbofusial acid fast stain produces red mycobacteria, which is initial stain, and blue non-acid fast bacteria, which will differentiate the two. The cell membrane and the cell wall of mycobacteria are most similar to those in gram-positive organisms, causing mycobacteria to appear weakly gram-positive. However, the mycobacterial cell wall differs from that typical gram-positive organisms in that they are encapsulated with mycolic acid, a waxy, long-chain fatty acid that is covalently bound to the sugars within the cell wall. Another organism that will stain positive with acid fast technique is, you guessed it, nocardia. Nocardia is gram-positive. It's a gram-positive rod, and it contains mycolic acid in its cell wall. But because nocardia possesses less mycolic acid than mycobacteria, nocardia is only weakly acid-fast. So we know that it's important to know not only the media that they grow in, but also uh, how they grow on the media themselves and what's in those media that's helping either facilitate the growth or stop the growth of other organisms so this certain organism can 
flourish. Selective media favors the growth of particular organisms or preventing the growth. And an indicator media is, for example, like a McConkie, which will have a pH indicator. A lactose fermenter, like E. coli, will convert the lactose that's in the McConkie, and it's acidic, so the color change will be pink. Let's talk about not just the media, but certain bacteria grow on that specific media. So let's be bacterial-focused on our study. An H. influenza bacteria, what you use for that is a chalk agar, or chocolate agar, because of the factors V and X. Factor V is NAD+, and X is hematin. Neisseria gonorrhea and Neisseria meningitidis use Thayer-Martin agar. Selectively favors Neisseria by inhibiting growth of gram-positive organisms with vancomycin, gram-negative organisms, except Neisseria with trimethoprim and colistin, and fungi with nystatin. The mnemonic for that is very typically cultures Neisseria. So when you think of Thayer-Martin, Thayer-Martin agar is what we use for Neisseria gonorrhea and meningitidis. And the mnemonic for what's inside a Thayer-Martin agar is very typically cultures Neisseria, VTCN. So the V in very typically cultures Neisseria, the V stands for vancomycin, which inhibits the growth of gram-positive organisms. Typically cultures, T and C for typically cultures, stands for trimethoprim and colistin, which will inhibit other gram-negative organisms and ensure that Neisseria will keep growing. Neisseria, very typically cultures Neisseria, is N for Nystatin, and that will help prevent fungal growth on a Thayer Martin agar. The next one is Bordetella pertussis. Bordetella pertussis is used by two different media, B for Borde Jinju agar and R for Reagan Lao medium. The Borde Jinju agar is a potato extract, and the Reagan Lao is the charcoal blood and antibiotic. Carinobacterium diphtheria uses two agars, Tellerite and Loeffler mediums. Tell them to laugh at the dipshit. Tell and laugh in the dip for diphtheria. Mycobacterium tuberculosis uses two agars, LJ medium, or the Lowenstein-Jensen medium, or the Middlebrook medium. Mycoplasma pneumoniae requires cholesterol. Thus, because it requires cholesterol to eat, it's using the Eaton agar. We use eosin methylene blue agar, or EMB agar, for E. coli, and it'll produce a green metallic sheen on the colonies. Brucella, Francisella, Legionella, and Pastorella BFLP, Brucella francisella, Legionella, Pastorella, use charcoal yeast extract buffered with cysteine and iron. Again, they use this charcoal yeast extract agar buffered with cysteine and iron. The way that I remember these four using the buffered yeast extract with cysteine and iron is the Ella siblings or the Ella bros because I look at Brucella, Francisella, Legionella, and Pastorella as kind of like bro names. So the Ella bros, Bruce, Francis are legion and a pastor built the cysteine chapel out of charcoal and iron. So fungi, saboride agar is sabs a fungi. That's the mnemonic they usually use. Some details that we need to remember that aren't in our first aid are the McConkie agar contains bile salts, which inhibit gram-positive bacteria, and the lactose fermenters, remember, turn pink, while colonies of non-lactose fermenters are colorless. The EMB agar inhibits gram-positive bacteria, and that bacteria that ferment lactose, such as E. coli, will appear with a green metallic sheen. 
That's why the Eosin methylene blue agar looks like that with E. coli in it. Hectoin enteric agar was not mentioned in our first aid book, but that's very important to remember. It's a medium designed to isolate and differentiate Salmonella and Shigella. Again, hectoin enteric agar, the HE agar, for Salmonella and Shigella from other Enterobacteriaceae. Bile salts, dyes, bromthymol blue, acid fusion, they're all there. All three of those are in there to inhibit most gram-positive organisms. So what hectoin enteric agar also has lactose, sucrose, and salicin to provide fermented carbohydrates to encourage growth and differentiation of enterics. Sodium thiosulfate provides a source of sulfur, and ferric ammonium citrate will help visualize the hydrogen sulfide production. So salmonella will have colorless colony with a black center due to the hydrogen sulfide production. TCBS agar or thiosulfate citrate bile salt sucrose agar plate grow vibrio. So they grow vibrio cholera and vibrio parahemolyticus. The vibrio cholera will grow yellow colonies while vibrio parahemolyticus will grow green colonies. <laughs> Alright, so pop quiz if you've been listening so far. Here is a USMLE style question. Health authorities are investigating an outbreak of respiratory infection among military recruits. 15 recruits persist with cough, low-grade fever, and malaise. Apart from the low-grade fever, the PE or the physical exam was largely unremarkable. But the chest x-rays looked terrible with pulmonary infiltrates that appeared more severe than would have been expected. Sputum specimens were obtained and the causative organism required a complex acellular medium enriched with cholesterol to grow. Which of the following organisms is the most likely cause of the outbreak? And this USMLE or UWorld question actually gives nine different choices. So you have to be very, very sure. You basically, what, 10%, less than 10%, more, a little bit more than 10% of a chance to get the question right. I'll give you the choices and you let me know the answer. Coxidoides amides, Coxiella burnetti, Haemophilus influenza, Histoplasma capsulatum, Campsia pneumoniae, Legionella pneumophila, Mycoplasma pneumoniae, Pneumocystis gerovici, Streptococcus pneumoniae. And if you've been paying attention, the answer is Mycoplasma pneumoniae. Eat for eaten agar, and it eats cholesterol. So examples of aerobes that need oxygen, nocardia, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, and Bordetella pertussis. So let's remember, nocardia, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, and Bordetella pertussis are all aerobes. But remember, clinically speaking, the reactivation of tuberculosis or TB after immunocompromised or a tissue necrosis factor inhibitor use, um, it has a predilection for the apices of the lungs. Primary implant can occur anywhere in the lungs, but the progression from the infection to disease, tubercle bacilli must gain access to the vulnerable regions in the apex of the lungs, and that's how you see it. Most commonly, when patient receives a TNF-alpha inhibitor or is immunocompromised, the reactivation is usually seen in the apex. Colbacterium tuberculosis loves oxygen. Anaerobes. The mnemonic for anaerobes is can't breathe fresh air. Anaerobes can't breathe fresh air. C for clostridium. B for Bacteroides, Fusobacterium, or Fresh, and A for Actinomyces Israeli. These anaerobes lack catalase, and they don't have 
superoxide dismutase, so they're susceptible for oxidative damage. Can't breathe fresh air, they don't like oxygen, they're generally foul-smelling, which is because of the short-chain fatty acids and are difficult to culture and produce gas in tissue. Hence, you see those a lot in Clostridium, right? Clostridium, Bacteroides, Fusobacterium, Actinomyces. Think of anaerobes and gas gangrene that you see in Clostridial myonecrosis. Google it, it's gross, and you won't forget that Clostridium species can't breathe fresh air. Clostridium, Bacteroides, Fusobacterium, Actinomyces israeli produce gas in tissue and are difficult to culture. Facultative anaerobes may use O2 as a terminal electron acceptor to generate ATP, but it can also use fermentation and other O2-independent pathways so they don't really need oxygen, such as streptococci, staphylococci, and enteric gram-negative bacteria. Let's talk about bacteria that is obligate intracellular. They want to hide, right? So RCC, it's really chilly and cold, so they stay inside. Really chilly and cold, obligate intracellular, rickettsia, chlamydia, and coxiella. RCC, really chilly and cold, rickettsia, chlamydia, coxiella. Facultative intracellular, salmonella, neisseria, brucella, mycobacterium, listeria, francisella, legionella, yersinia. So, facultative intracellular organisms can live inside, but can also live outside. So, the mnemonic for facultative intracellular bacteria is some nasty bugs may live facultatively. Some nasty bugs may live facultatively. Some, or S, for salmonella, nasty, N for Neisseria, bugs, B for brucella, may, M for mycobacterium, L, for Listeria, F for facultatively is Francisella, but also the LY of facultatively is L for Legionella, and the Y for Yersinia pestis. Encapsulated bacteria are very clinically important. These capsules, they serve as antiphagocytic virulence factors. So they're capsular polysaccharide and protein conjugate serves as an antigen in vaccines as well. So what's important to remember is please shine my skis is the mnemonic for encapsulated bacteria. Once again, it's please shine my skis. Another very clinically important fact is that asplenics or people that don't have spleen have decreased opsonization activity, which means they're at risk for severe infections of please shine my skis. For P4, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, shine, S for Streptococcus pneumoniae, H in shine is Haemophilus influenza type B, the N in shine is Neisseria meningitidis, the E in shine is E. coli, my skis, the S in skis is Salmonella, K in skis is Klebsiella, and the S in skis is group B strep, otherwise known as strep agalactiae. Pop quiz, which one of them are we able to protect against through vaccination? There's three on please shine my skis encapsulated bacteria. They are Neisseria meningitidis, S for streptomoniae, and H for H influenza. So let's talk about encapsulated bacteria vaccines. So these vaccines are these vaccines contain polysaccharide capsule antigens and are conjugated to a carrier protein and thus enhancing immunogenicity. So when you're vaccinated against something, obviously your B cells are involved, but what is different with the vaccines that are conjugated is that you promote T cell activation and subsequent 
class switching. A polysaccharide antigen alone cannot be presented to the T cells. So now that the T cells are involved with pneumococcal vaccines, which one is it that is conjugated or otherwise considered as a conjugate vaccine? And that's PCV13. That's the pneumococcal vaccine 13, not the PPSV23. That's the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine with no conjugated protein. PPSV23 has no conjugation or conjugated protein. H. influenza type B is a conjugate vaccine, of course, and the meningococcal vaccine to protect us against Neisseria meningitidis. Urease positive organisms are important to remember because urease hydrolyzes urea to release ammonia and carbon dioxide, which in turn increases the pH. And that predisposes the person to struvite or ammonium magnesium phosphate stones, particularly proteus. Urease positive organisms are proteus, cryptococcus, H. pylori, urea plasma, nocardia, klebsiella, and staph epidermidis. The mnemonic for urease positive organisms organisms is P chunks because if you have a urease positive organism such as proteus you're probably going to be peeing chunks of ammonium magnesium phosphate stones the mnemonic is P for proteus C for cryptococcus H for H pylori U for urea plasma N for nocardia K for klebsiella S is staph epidermidis and another S for a staph saprophyticus. So chunks, P chunks, the end of that is SE and SS, staph epi and staph sapro. Catalase positive organisms, important with staph is, we know that that's catalase positive because when we're looking at gram positive bacteria, the most important way that we can differentiate between staph and strep is with a catalase test. So catalase positive, of course, is staph and you go down the road from there. Nocardia, serratia, candida, listeria, E. coli, brocodilia, pseudomonas, aspergillus, H. pylori, and bordetella pertussis are also catalase positive. Once again, catalase positive organisms, which degrades H2O2 into water is really important because especially with people with chronic granulomatous disease, they aren't able to protect themselves against catalase positive organisms. So they will have recurrent infections of catalase positive organisms. Nocardia, staph, serratia, candida, listeria, E. coli, burkholderia, pseudomonas, Aspergillus, H. pylori, and Bordetella pertussis. Pigment-producing bacteria. So let's talk about who produces yellow sand. Actinomyces israeli produces yellow sand. Israel has yellow sand. Staph aureus, yellow pigment, or aureus or AU is gold, so that's a good mnemonic. Sunbonus aeruginosa, blue-green pigment, which produces pyocyanin and pyoverdin, P for pseudomonas. Arugula is green, that's also a good way to remember it. Serratia maricens is red pigment, serratia or sriracha, which is red. In vivo biofilms. Okay, so it's very important to remember these because staph epidermidis is seen in catheter and prosthetic device infections. Viridin streptococci, S. mutans, and S. sanguinis are seen in dental plaques and infective endocarditis. Viridin streptococci produce in vivo biofilms that you can see in dental plaques and infective endocarditis. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, respiratory tree colonization in patients with cystic fibrosis, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and contact lens-associated keratitis. Pseudomonas also produce biofilms, but you can see those in patients with cystic fibrosis and patients that are in ventilators. And you can also see that in contact lenses. 
Non-typable, unencapsulated Haemophilus influenza causes what? Non-typable, unencapsulated H. influenzae in vivo biofilm-producing bacteria causes otitis media. Now for spore-forming bacteria, when nutrients are limited, some bacteria form spores. And the core contains dipicolinic acid. That's important that we remember dipicolinic acid is in all spores. You have to autoclave 121 degrees Celsius for 15 minutes. Those numbers are important. I will repeat, 121 degrees Celsius for 15 minutes minutes. What are these spore-forming bacteria? Of course, we know anthrax, bacillus anthracis, bacillus cereus that causes food poisoning, clostridium botulinum causes botulism, clostridium difficile causes pseudomembrane colitis, clostridium perfringens causes gas gangrene, and clostridium tetany which causes tetanus. On the next podcast episode, we're going to talk about bacterial virulence factors, pathogenicity, and the endotoxins and exotoxins and their importance. So just to give you a little preview on bacterial virulence factors, we just have to remember these three for now before the next episode. Protein A. Protein A binds FC regions of IgG, which prevents opsonization and phagocytosis. Who makes protein A? A for staph aureus. IgA protease. Okay, so this is an enzyme that cleaves IgA, which attacks the bacteria that colonize mucous membranes. Strep pneumoniae, H. influenzae type B, and Neisseria. So these three, obviously very common to infect mucous membranes. The third virulence factor that I want to go over before the next episode is M-protein. M-protein helps prevent phagocytosis because hides the bacteria. It's expressed by group A streptococci, otherwise known as strep pyogenes. It's an epitope similar to human cellular proteins, otherwise known as molecular mimicry. M protein for molecular mimicry. That's why you can get autoimmune responses seen in acute rheumatic fever because after a group A strep infection or after a strep pyogenes infection and the body causes autoimmune response when it thinks that the M protein that was causing disease in the first place is in different cellular human proteins. Here's a USMLE Step 1 question related to the previously discussed organisms and virulence factors. A 50-year-old man comes to the emergency department due to worsening fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Patient initially presented a week ago with a fever, headache, myalgia, nasal discharge, and a sore throat. He tests positive for influenza and discharged with symptomatic treatments. The patient's symptoms gradually improve over the past few days and he has had high fevers now. Cough is productive now with yellowish putum. Now he feels a sharp right-sided chest pain and shortness of breath. The patient has no other medical problems and does not use tobacco or drugs and usually healthy. Blood pressure is 118 over 66, pulse is 110. Physical examination reveals right-sided lung crackles. Chest x-ray reveals infiltrates in the right upper lobe, which of the following pathogens is most likely to be isolated from the patient's sputum, and the choices are Cytomegalovirus is A, B, Klebsiella pneumoniae, C, Listeria monocytogenes, D, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and E, Staph aureus. The answer is E, Staph aureus. 
So remember that the patient has influenza, and what influenza does, it attacks the tracheobronchial epithelium. It results in the decrease in size and the loss of cilia. And because it lost cilia, the bacterial colonization is increased. Influenza also has a protein called neuraminidase, which cleaves sialic acid off of host glycoproteins. So that means that if the sialic acid is cleaved off of the glycoprotein, you have an increased amount of free sugar in the respiratory tract and it fosters the bacterial growth. These changes in patients that are recovering from flu are at risk for secondary bacterial infections. And most commonly, the answer would be, if it was up here, we would be putting streptococcus pneumoniae. And remember, streptococcus pneumoniae also has that extra virulence factor of IgA protease and it generates a bacterial superinfection to what was originally just a regular run-of-the-mill viral infection. The second most common is Staph aureus, and that's the answer. Although the elderly are affected most commonly post-influenza pneumonia due to Staph aureus frequently develops in young, previously healthy patients. There are three organisms that you usually see during a post-viral influenza infection. One is Streptomoniae, two is Staph aureus, and three is another organism that has IgA protease. The answer is Haemophilus influenza. Why not CMV? Why not A? Cytomegalovirus causes pneumonia, yes, but those are usually seen in immunocompromised patients and post-transplants, and it's not associated with post-influenza infections, and especially not associated with right-sided crackles because obviously it's a CMV infection, it's viral, you usually see bilateral interstitial infiltration. Why not Klebsiella pneumoniae? Klebsiella pneumoniae is the most common cause of nosocomial pneumonia or aspiration pneumonia who abuse alcohol and IV drugs. Klebsiella pneumoniae, think alcohol, IV drugs, and patient's sputum is not going to be yellow. It's going to be thick, bloody, like a curant jelly sputum, and it's significant to inflammation and necrosis and does not cause post-influenza pneumonia. Older patients who are immunocompromised are at increased risk of listeria, so it's not C, but, or, you know, sepsis and meningitis, but pneumonia would be very atypical. Mycobacteria avium intracellulari, or choice D, is not the right one, obviously, because you usually see those in patients who are immunocompromised, such as patients with AIDS. M. kansasi, Mycobacterium kansasi, may cause pulmonary tuberculosis, like symptoms. M. leprae is leprosy. Mycobacterium scrofulaceum causes cervical lymphadenitis in children. So the non-tuberculous bacteria would not be the right answer. And last but not least is another USMLE question related to our current podcast. A three-year-old brought to the office due to a one-day history of fever and irritability. The mother states that the boy has been tugging at his right ear and the patient has had two previous episodes of acute otitis media. The temperature is 38.1 degrees Celsius or 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And so you have the otoscope examination and you see a right tympanic membrane with erythema and purulent discharge. Cultures from the exudate yield small oxidase positive gram negative coxobacilli that grow on factor X and factor V supplemented media. You already know we went over this. The patient's immunizations are up to date and which of the following explains the patient's susceptibility to the pathogen that causes the current infection. A. No vaccine is effective against H. influenzae. 
B. The patient has defective cell-mediated immunity. C. The patient has a defective neutrophil function. D. The strain responsible for the patient's disease does not produce a capsule. And E. The strain responsible for the patient's disease produces exotoxin. So let's piece this apart. The patient has a fever and it's inflamed perforated tympanic membrane, it's purulent otorrhea, and has acute otitis media. And what are the most common organisms for otitis media? Middle ear infections, most commonly in younger children, are typically due to strep pneumonia or Haemophilus influenza. So now it's asking which of the following best explains the susceptibility to H. influenzae because this patient already has his immunizations up to date, three-year-old boy. Okay, immunizations up to date, hmm, interesting. H. influenzae, a small oxidase positive gram-negative coxobacillus, is classified by the antigens in a polysaccharide capsule. So the strains of H. influenzae that do not produce a capsule, we refer to as non-typable. So these non-typable strains are part of the upper respiratory tract flora but they can also cause otitis media, sinusitis, and bronchitis. Most H. influenzae strains isolated from the middle ear of children, otitis media are non-typable. Again, most influenza or H. influenza or Haemophilus influenza strains isolated from middle ear aspirates of children with acute otitis media are non-typable. Vaccination against Haemophilus influenzae is with a protein conjugated HIB, which is Haemophilus influenza type B vaccine, which confers immunity only to the invasive type B strain. The strain that produces or is the strain that's responsible for this patient disease does not produce the capsule. The answer is not A because we do have a vaccine. The vaccine is recommended in all children at two months of age to prevent HIV-associated bacteremia, pneumonia, epiglottitis, meningitis. Choice B is the patient has defective cell-mediated immunity. It's obviously not C, because if a patient has a defective neutrophil function, that means that the patient would be predisposed to bacterial diseases in general. So as you can see with CGD or chronic rheumatous diseases, Trijakagashi syndromes, you would get recurrent and severe bacterial infections such as pneumonia and abscesses, not just otitis media. So choice E, of course, is the wrong answer because it E is the strain responsible for this patient's disease produces exotoxin and that's not the right answer because exotoxins are secreted by certain bacteria to promote cell death but are not produced by H. influenzae. On the next podcast episode, we will talk about exotoxins and endotoxins and which bacteria produce them.